11 through 20. Taking us uh, just beyond the halfway point of this, this chapter and this incident, which as I say we'll consider under two sermons. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of. I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which uh, he said he would do to his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain and the two tables or tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other. They were written. Now the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's no, the noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire and ground it to powder. And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word and we ask you that through, again, the weakness of preaching, that you might uh, show forth your power, the power of your word, both to convert and to convict and to convince, bringing uh, the sinner to repentance. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, last time Moses' uh, time on the mountain drew to a close and the Lord, as he promised him, gave him the tablets, he placed them in his hand, and these were to be given to the people and then placed into the ark. It really is a wonderful picture if you think of the Lord and Moses communing on the mountain and of the incredible way that the Lord was about to bless Israel. But what we discover here in chapter 32 is what the people were doing while Moses was away and just as he was about to come down the mountain. What he discovered at the foot of the mountain, as the Lord indicated to him at the end of his stay, it is the incident, as you know, uh, concerning the golden calf. And it is yet another, sadly we have to say that, yet another in Israel's short uh, history already instance of her unbelief and sin. And even uh, one commentator said, apostasy, already using that language, I think perhaps a little prematurely, but but already there Israel was just as God was founding the covenant. She was breaking the covenant. And this becomes the pattern of Israel. And the way I discovered upon studying this passage uh, to divide it or to understand it was to see it as a series of temptations What we find uh, just in these 20 verses is that uh, Israel is tempted by Moses' uh, delay. And following that, you have a second temptation or 
Israel is tempted, and then her sin, it becomes a temptation to Aaron. And following that, we read beginning in verse, let's see, verse 7. What really is the focus is then the temptation that Moses felt to forsake the people. And so it's a series of temptations, and it's fascinating to discover uh, the various manifestations of sin and the mortifications of sin that we, we see in the case of these three incidents. The temptations they face, the responses they had to them. But I would notice here, and I already indicated something of this, the timing of this series of tests and trials, something that we have seen before. Here is a season of tremendous blessing, and Israel ought to have been waiting at the foot of the mountain with tremendous anticipation at what was about to happen. The Lord was preparing to bless the people. The question is, why does God bring fresh trials now? Why does he let Satan loose uh, to run rampant among the people? And it's because we discover scripturally, but we also find this to be true in our own lives, that seasons of blessing, but especially the timing just before God is ready to bring some great blessing to the church are times when God tests us and tries us and prepares us to receive the blessing. But then that leads to this question. It's a question I've been asking myself uh, quite a bit lately. I think it's a question that Christians through the ages have asked over and over again. And sometimes we struggle to answer. And that's why does God test us? Why does he bring the church through so many seasons of trial? Even uh, as he is prepared to bless us. Well, in answering the question, it's important to distinguish between a trial and discipline. Trials are not discipline, even if they look the same and possess the same goal. Discipline, thinking of Hebrews chapter 12, which is a quotation of, well, I can't remember, But uh, Hebrews chapter 12, we read that the Lord chastens those whom he loves. But discipline is something that comes after disobedience. It's a trial that God brings into our life to bring about our repentance. But trials look a little bit differently. They come either before disobedience or before obedience. At, At the moment of a test, it remains unclear. And maybe we will fail the test leading to discipline. But a test or a trial is not the same thing as the chastening or the discipline of the Lord. Again, chastening comes after, trials come before. Well, why does God test? Or as I say, let Satan loose upon the church. And there are a few answers. One uh, is that he wishes to see what is in us. If you think of Abraham, when the Lord brought him through a season of trial with Isaac. And what the Lord says at the end of it. Even though the Lord is omniscient, accommodating his omniscience to Abraham's faith, he says, now I know. Now I know. In other words, now I can see clearly your faith and you can see it too and so can the world. He wants to reveal what is in us. Sadly, in the case of Israel, we know what that was. But he also wants to make us better. He wants uh, us always to be improving all the time. He wants to perfect us and to enhance our standing in the kingdom of God. You remember what... Paul said to Timothy, as the young minister, much as myself, he said, I want you to devote yourself to the word of God and to let your progress be evident to all. Let it be evident to the church, Timothy, that you are improving. That was Paul's will for Timothy. That was God's will for Timothy. 
But we also see the same thing throughout the epistles. Paul is constantly saying, I'm laboring and striving until Christ is formed in you. In other words, where you stand is not where God wants you to be in a year from now or in 10 years from now. He wants to bring you further along. And one of the ways that he brings you along and causes you to progress is through trials and difficulties. But another reason that he brings trials upon the church and allows Satan to tempt us is because God himself is glorified in the faith and the resilience of his people when they are able to withstand the trials. It is one thing to praise him when things are easy, but it is quite another thing to praise him. As for instance, in the voice of the martyrs, how much God is glorified when a saint can praise him just as he's about to be burned at the stake, as we find in the case of some of the reformers. The choicest jewel of the saints is to adhere to him under the weight of sore trials, not in times of prosperity, but in times and seasons of adversity to bless the Lord, even though he afflicts and he appears to be distant, hidden on the mountain as he was for Israel in those days. And so we have here a series of three tests, three trials and three temptations. And there were four issues at stake which I could just briefly summarize before we look at these three incidents. The first issue was that of, and I was just speaking of this, the faith and the perseverance and the resilience of the people of God. This is something that God is always looking for. It's why he doesn't leave the church alone or he doesn't leave the Christian alone and just make his life easy. He wants to know, will you hold fast Will you adhere to your confession, though things are not so easy? Will Israel go on in her faith, though God ceases for a time to perform mighty acts? Will we continue when things get difficult? Will we continue when God appears distant and again, as it were, hidden on the mountain along with his prophet? Will we continue to believe in him and to adhere to him when we have no sensible uh, sense of his presence? The second issue was that of the second commandment specifically. What we see here, and I'll, I'll, I'll describe this in a moment, but that Israel had this carnal desire to, to materialize a spiritual God. Precisely what God had forbidden, not only in the second commandment, but uh, in, in other places as well. And this is the sort of thing that we find Israel breaking all the time. In fact, if you read the Old Testament carefully over the years, what you will notice is that the second and the fourth commandment is what Israel was always breaking. She was always given to idolatry. She was always given to Sabbath breaking. But again, the issue at stake in the second commandment was the spirituality of God, that God is a spiritual essence that cannot be seen with the human eye. The third issue at stake we find in the case of Moses and of Aaron was the office of the priest and how much we realize the position of the people in their relation to God and in their ability to face the trials that they had depended upon their relation to the priesthood far more than they realized. Far more than even Aaron realized, but thank God Moses realized it. And then the fourth issue was the wrath of God, which we find God himself speaking of. Let me be that I might pour my wrath out on these people. This is ever an issue facing even the people of God, something with which we have to contend and reckon with 
And though it would seem Israel here, just as we find in, Israel, in uh, Paul's day, Israel was unwilling to do. They never really were, it seems, willing to reckon with the reality of the wrath of God. Well, look at the first temptation, which we find simply in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods, uh, shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And that is as much as we read about that. We read about Aaron following uh, in the following verses 2 through 6, and then Moses after that. And so what we see first is the temptation of Israel. Uh, Forty days, it seems, is too much for them to wait. The delay of Moses' return was a test for Israel, Kyle and Dillage, very simply. And why was it a test for Israel? Well, it was because, for one thing, Moses was gone, and probably they thought he was dead. And they were beginning to uh, formulate a new plan, which was a foolish notion. Nevertheless, it seems to be what was at the back of their minds. But more importantly, we see that it was a temptation for them, this period of 40 days, because their faith could not last a single day if not supported by outward manifestations of God's power and his love. Their faith faltered because in reality it wasn't faith at all, but sight, which makes all depend on what can be seen, missing what is the real essence of faith which is to believe and rest upon a God that it cannot see, to rest upon the promise. And so the sin of the people we see from the single verse was threefold. It was impatience, it was unbelief, and ultimately it resulted in false worship, a desire in breaking the second commandment to materialize God. And what is interesting to notice, if you go on with the incident, is how much uh, this desire... As Calvin says, every man has innately a desire to worship God. And he's always corrupting the true worship for the false. But at the same time, it always resembles the true. We see them offering sacrifices to their false god. They even say, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember what the essence of the second commandment is not worshiping false gods. That's the first commandment. It's worshiping the true God through images. That's what J.I. Packer says. And that's what they were doing here. They were materializing the true God and they were perverting, though, as I say, in a way that resembled the true, but they were perverting true worship. But the tragedy of this incident is seen. And surely you can appreciate this, given everything that we've just been reading, that God was just about to bless her mightily to bring the old covenant into its fullness. And what we discover here, and this powerfully illustrates the tragedy of her sin, Moses, in bringing the tablets to them, instead of those being given to the people, they lay broken at Moses' feet, symbolizing uh, the, the covenant they're broken through their disobedience. And even if we are prepared to go as far as one commentator, already speaking of their apostasy. And so that leads to the temptation of Aaron in verses 2 through 6. Quoting Kyle and Dillich again, the apostasy of the nation became a temptation to him. And the temptation that he felt, let me say something in favor of Aaron, and I'm going to say this again and again. Aaron was a good man. He was, uh, I, I think, a man who had faith. I know he was. And so he was not apostate. But he was tempted in his office. And in this temptation, he failed. The temptation that he felt was to appease the people. 
They were crying out to him and he did not have the strength and the courage as God's ministers must to say, no, I will not go along with your plan. And, and, and what is more, I will tell you to have faith in God, to turn from your sin. Instead, he chooses the path of weakness. He tries to appease them in his mind by suggesting to them something he thinks they, they are not prepared to do. Take the gold that you just brought out of Egypt. Take it out of your wives' own ears. And I'll make you a god. Now again, he thought in doing that, that that would be going too far. They wouldn't possibly give up uh, the plunder of Egypt. And yet the amazing thing he discovers is that he miscalculated their desire for false worship. They are ready to give up their gold, if only he might give them a god. And so when they do that, yet another opportunity presented itself to him to say, no, you've gone too far, I've sinned, it is time to turn on to God. But he doesn't do that. He lacks again the courage to tell them no, and he becomes the very one who fashions this god of gold. And so it is the unbelief of the people that becomes a temptation and a trial to this minister. A temptation, as I say, that he fails uh, fails miserably or a test. His sin in this case was not his own desire to materialize God. It was rather his desire to appease the people. It was the weakness of the minister, which is tragic that Aaron of all people should be guilty of this. One of his sons, perhaps, but not Aaron, the man who was to be the high priest, already failing even uh, before he was called to inhabit the tabernacle. But that brings us uh, to really what becomes the focus. And that is how the sin of each becomes a temptation and a trial to Moses, which we find uh, in verses 7 to the end. The Lord essentially says to him, let me alone, I, I will consume this people in my wrath. And he says that to Moses directly. And that's the test that Moses then has to respond to. The Lord is seeing what Moses is prepared to do. And we know that because the Lord doesn't actually follow through with this. But as he did with Abraham before, he says, this is what I want. And then uh, it, it, it arouses a response in his servant. And so God changes course. What God threatens to do, let us see. And you'll understand why this becomes a temptation to Moses. is not just to destroy the people who were such a burden to Moses. This is something that we notice uh, continually. Moses was not a successful minister. He ministered to a, a thankless and a faithless people, always faithless. His office was not a happy one. And God is saying to him, I will get rid of them and I will make of you a great nation. You can understand how in that moment he would be tempted to be rid of his burden and to get on with things and to see God mightily blessing him still. But God was testing him at the very point of his office because he was called to be the mediator of these people and even the priest of these people. And so to quote Kylan Dillich one final time, God puts the fate of the nation into the hands of Moses. It wasn't just his own fate that he was comprehending and considering. It was the fate of the people. The question is, what would he do? How would he respond? And so we can divide this episode briefly into three Uh, in, In the three parts, first, God puts the test before him. The decision is his. God will act only once Moses has decided. Number two, 
what we see is that Moses pleads with God. He pleads with God uh, for God to glorify himself and his people and not to forsake the people whom God has given to Moses to minister to. But then having done so, and surely we ought to make something of this as well, he turns to the people. He goes down uh, to the mountain. He goes down the mountain to the people, and we read of what he does there. We read of his anger and of uh, how he deals with them. And, and really, that will become more of the focus of the following sermon. But clearly, the great issue to be seen in in, in the incident of Moses' uh, test or temptation is the faith of Moses. The faith of Moses. Thank God for Moses. It's just a reminder to us that even in days of terrible apostasy. Uh, and, and even when faithful ministers like Aaron are faltering, you just can't help but think of our own day. God still has a few faithful men. The faith of Moses is seen in the way that he owned his office and so the people. His office again was that of a mediator. And this was an office that he would not forsake, though he was given the ability rightly to do so. If he had done so, uh, then he would not have sinned. God was giving him an honest choice, but the thought was out of the question for Moses. He could not forsake the people for his own personal glory, uh, though, again, they, they would have deserved it. And thus, it is said of Moses that he was faithful. I'm going to read that passage in a moment, Hebrews chapter 3. He was faithful in the house of God, because he sought not his own glory, but God's And he sought the well-being of the people, even of people who were indeed apostate. We also see the kind of prayer that Moses makes. This is a kind of model of prayer. What it is that uh, God's servants ought to plead with God. Now, I've already said this, but let me say it again. What he's pleading for is God to be faithful to his own promise. And he's pleading for God to be glorified in the midst of his people. And so he's contending with God on the things that God has already prepared to do. It's a prayer that cannot fail. But the last thing that we notice, and again, this highlights the faithfulness of Moses as a minister and a servant of God and of the people, is that his disposition of the people is seen. Though he had just pled for them, it is seen to be one of anger. He comes down the mountain, he throws the stones on the ground, he burns up the calf, he mixes it with water and makes the people drink it so that they might consume the bitterness of their own sin and rebellion. He was angry with the people. And such a thing, I would say, beloved, is not out of the question. Uh, Not among uh, the, the ministers who are faithful when the people are in sin. And so it's said of him, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus is faithful, he's saying. But on this point, he shares something in common with Moses. And this is what we see in Exodus 32, among other places. As also he goes on, Moses was faithful in all his house, for this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has built uh, the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by some, but he that built all things is God. And he says it again. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, 
for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. Now, we could also speak, and I only want to briefly mention this, but of the testing of God himself. Only in the sense that the people were putting God to the test. Precisely what God says in other places not to do. They were tempting him by their sin to cast them off in his wrath. And also uh, the language of God either repenting or relenting. Depending on the translation you have. Points in this direction. Not that God was guilty of sin or tempted to sin. But that he was also faced with the decision as uh, these other three actors And he made his decision, as we saw, to depend upon that of Moses. So that when he changed course, let me alone that I might might consume these people, he says, and then he relents of his anger. When he changed course, it is spoken of as either God's repentance or his relenting. But I want to return and and bring the sermon to a close uh, with thoughts from this passage that I just read in Hebrews chapter Speaking of the faithfulness of Christ, pattern after the faithfulness of Moses, of course, uh, far exceeding the faithfulness of Moses, but they are analogous as faithfulness in the house of God. And we notice how it closes in verse six. I want to read that again. Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm until the end. In other words, what you notice Uh, The passage in Hebrews doing and this captures the real thrust of Hebrews, which in many ways is just an exposition of Exodus into the modern setting. Is it focuses the issues that are ever confronting the church as we are those who are in and of the house of God. The issues that confronted the church in Moses day and Aaron's day are confronting the church still today. God is still testing and trying us to see what is in us. And so first I would say that God is still testing his ministers as he was doing with Aaron and Moses. He wants to know, will his ministers be faithful? Will they give in to the sinful cravings of the people or will they be faithful to God? Will they call the people to repentance? Do they have the courage as Moses did to deal with their sin? And even at times to display a righteous anger on behalf of the glory of God. Will they contend against the unbelief of the people and their clamoring for a worship which does not glorify God? Or will they pursue their own glory given the opportunity? How many ministers will have to give an account for that? But God is also testing the church. He always is. He was testing the church in Moses' day. He's testing the church now. And the question that we always have is, why is he testing us? But also, why is he testing us like this? Why are these the trials that we have to face? And Lord, when will you ever let up? When will you give the church a period of, uh, of respite? You are wearying us, O oh Lord. Well, the truth is, God's people ultimately never know. We don't have an answer to the question why God is bringing such trials before us in our own day. But who can deny the issues that face us just now in the 21st century? The issues that are confronting this church and the church broadly. 
And the question that is confronting us right now is what confronted the church in their day and what confronted the church in the day of the Reformation is God is testing us. What is in us and how will we respond? It is in periods of trial and testing, beloved, that the issues that are deeply important to us are clarified for us to see. It isn't just God who is able to say, now I know what is in you. It becomes clear to us ourselves what are our priorities and clear even for the world to see. When God is trying the church, what does he find? But ultimately, I would notice that there is an even greater issue here. And this is what uh, the book of Hebrews ultimately helps us to see. But it's also something that we see in this passage. And that is how our entire position as the church in the wilderness, uh, passing through a period of temptation and trial, that's what the wilderness represents. Our whole position depends upon... The priesthood. And in particular, our whole position depends upon a mediator we cannot see. Let me say that again. Our whole position depends upon a mediator we cannot see. Moses on the mountain, Christ in heaven. There is a similarity you ought to lay hold of. In understanding the analogy between the church and Israel in the wilderness. And we understand then, like Israel, how much our position in the wilderness depends if we are to face the trials and the temptations that are sure to come. How much it depends upon a priest we cannot see. And whose prayers and intercessions avail with God on our behalf. The question which is confronted and resolved ultimately on the basis of that priest is will he stay his hand or will he slay? And what is it that will ever help the people to stay the course and to remain faithful, though temptations ever beset them in the wilderness? It's the priest on the mountain. We see here, as we know ourselves, how our earthly helpers sometimes fail us, like Aaron. Good men, but who succumb to the weakness of the flesh. I tell you, I relate to this. I understand Aaron here more than I understand Moses. Not that I am good, but that I am weak. Let me be clear. Oh, but look here. There's one on the mountain dwelling in the presence of God. One, yes, it is true, whom we cannot see, which is the very uh, thing that presents a test to our faith. And we are apt, because of this, to forget about him. Far too often we consider others, but we do not consider Jesus. We cry not to him in the hour of trial. We forget why he is there and what he's capable of. He stands there as a continual intercessor in the presence of God on our behalf, like Moses, ever ready to offer grace to help in time of need. And where would we be as the church in the wilderness but for that help and his faithful ministry over the house of God? Yes, but do you see that on that very basis, again, using Hebrews chapter 3 as the point of application to the church, It is on that basis, having considered Jesus and the faithfulness of his ministry, that we are exhorted not to rest easy in the wilderness, but to persevere in faith and to learn the lesson of Israel. Listen to verse 6 again. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. And do you know what comes next? In verse 7, he begins to speak of a people who heard but who fell in the wilderness through unbelief. He's calling us to something better. 
you are called in hearing to hold fast. Hold fast your confidence firm to the end, he says, which especially means hold fast to him who is your high priest and your mediator and your confidence. Do not forsake he who alone can help you in the hour of trial, in the hour of temptation, and who can bring you into the promised land. It is because we forget him that we fall. And it is because we do not know him. We have many earthly helpers. But all of them will fail us. And there is only one who can bring us through to the promised land. And his name is Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know anything of his power and his grace and his ability to help? Have you learned what it means to partake of him and his grace and to hold fast to him? As he says later in that same chapter, speaking to the church, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. And again, he says, and I close with this Hebrews chapter four, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Again, Moses on the mountain, Christ in the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, he says, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. And let us respond now to God's word in singing and standing uh, as we sing hymn number 475.